Hi there, Bernice Harrison here. We're taking a break from the podcast this week, but we've got a great episode from the archives to bring you today. It's a behind-the-scenes look at The Deepest Breath, the Netflix documentary about freediving, which came out earlier this year. If you haven't seen the documentary yet, and we really do recommend you watch it, just be aware there are a few spoilers in this chat with its Irish director, Laura McGann. Freediving is one of the world's deadliest extreme sports. It's very simple. The deepest dive wins. You've got to swim the length of a 70-story skyscraper. Three, two, one. Earlier this summer, a Netflix documentary about the hidden world of freediving catapulted the sport in front of a global audience. First time I dived down, holding my breath, all the problems and the shit from daily life just vanished. It doesn't exist down there. It's beautiful. The Deepest Breath tells the story of Alessia Zucchini, a champion freediver from Italy, and Stephen Keenan, an expert safety diver from Glasnevin in Dublin. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. I knew I didn't want to stay at home, settle down. I knew that wasn't going to happen. As they rise separately through the ranks of this fringe sport, their lives eventually become intertwined. It almost feels like destiny. They were kind of each other's missing piece. And, you know, as watching it, kind of, we, we hope that you can really see that so that you know that when they come together, it's just something magical is going to happen. The film was directed by Irish filmmaker Laura McGann and gives an incredible insight into the world of freediving, which sees divers reach depths of more than 100 metres without any equipment and with one single breath. You know, it was kind of like realising that, finding out that there is a group of people who, in the world who have figured out that they know how to fly. And here they are, there's some videos on the internet of them flying and it hasn't been in the news. And it really felt like I'd stumbled across something like that. This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. Today... The Making of the Deepest Breath, with Irish director Laura McGann. Laura, I assume as a filmmaker, you're always on the lookout for stories. And you found this one in 2017 in an article in the Irish Times. Tell me about first coming across it and what your thoughts were. I remember where I was sitting when I read the article about Stephen and Alessia for the first time. I was sitting in my on the couch in my apartment in, in Dunleary and um, I read about uh, the accident and uh, on my phone. Do you know as you're just flicking on your phone? And I uh, went to the into onto my desk and um, sat down and I didn't know what freediving was, so I googled what is freediving, you know. And I was met with these incredible videos of people that didn't seem to have the urge to breathe under the water and they lasted for minutes and minutes and minutes on end with obviously no scuba gear, like a dolphin under the water. And I thought, oh my God, I didn't know people could do this. My initial reaction was to see if I could sit in the chair doing nothing and also hold my breath. I said, surely I'll be able to do that. And of course, you're holding it and then you're like gasping for air but really, it was visual. I just thought visually it was so stunning. I was just so surprised that I hadn't seen it before. 
you know, it was kind of like realizing that finding out that there is a group of people who in the world who have figured out that they know how to fly. And here they are, there's some videos on the internet of them flying and it hasn't been in the news. And it really felt like I'd stumbled across something like that. So I was just hooked and there was so much there in terms of the people, but also like the biology, like how is this happening? So, so much to get my head around. And then there was, of course, the story of Alessia and Stephen and that really it took a long time for that to for it to to kind of like get to know uh, both of their stories and and talk to people and and to really uh, the community really just brought me took me under their wing and brought me into their world. So they just walked me through it all for kind of a couple of years before we did anything, and it was amazing. They were incredibly generous. So the opening sequence of the deepest breath is of Alicia freediving. It's more than four consecutive minutes of a free dive. And, you know, I, you talked about holding your breath. I felt I was holding my breath while I was watching it. Now, four minutes of a silent scene is a risk, isn't it, for a filmmaker at the start of a film? Why did you decide to open the film with that? It is, but it's not silent. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of sound design that's going on there. You can hear the heartbeat slowing because that's what happens. When they when you dive deeper, your heart rates rate slows down, so you, you hear that. And we tried to capture with the sound design the um, what you would hear. And a freedivers explained to us kind of like what it sounds like, not from a microphone's point of view. You know, we could dip a microphone under the water and you'd get something, but it, we tried to kind of reflect what the freedivers described as what they could hear as they went deeper. And that was a really, really interesting process. And it was really, we had to be quite creative with it because we're just interpreting what they're saying. And then, you know, seeing what, what you know, we had an amazing team in Molinaire in London and they, we had Foley artists and they were splashing about in baths and, you know, using all kinds of things to try and create this atmosphere. Um, and create the sound of the pressure around you as the pressure's getting more and more and more. But just going back to your question, it's kind of twofold. We knew that there's no point in us starting this story anywhere other than because a lot, like I didn't know what freediving was. A lot of people kind of haven't quite grasped the extent of what it is um, and what the person does. So I said, we have people have to understand this first. And then secondly... The only way you couldn't have people saying this is a sport where you hold your breath or here's a couple of shots of somebody freediving. The piece that that really brings you into it is the time. You have to understand the time and the only way you can grasp that is to actually sit through it for that length of time. So we believed in it, myself and our editor, Julian, we got very excited and we thought, oh, geez, this is going to be a risk now showing it to the producers and Initially, they were both uh, kind of like what you were saying there. They were both like, oh, my God. But also we can't exactly start a film like this, you know, with one shot for that length of time. But they could see the strength of it as well. And and ultimately, it just felt like the absolute right way. It was the only way we could start the film. So the film is the story of Stephen Keenan, a safety freediver from Dublin, and we'll get to what a safety freediver means. And Alessia Zucchini, 
It's about the paths they took and how their lives eventually became intertwined. So let's start with Alicia, a free diver who we first meet as a teenager, this skinny little teenager, taking part in free diving competitions in a swimming pool in her native Italy. Like, I didn't even know swimming pool free diving is a sport, but she wasn't entirely welcome in that sport. No, when like free diving in a swimming pool doesn't, I don't think, really exist here in Ireland. But it actually does exist all over Italy. It's a kind of, you know, they've got a bit of a history of free diving. And also it's very much um, a male sport, you know. Um, so she turned up as a, what age was she, 13, to a free diving course. And she was the only, not only the only female there, but she was a kid. And and it was grown men, you know, she saw them as old men at the time. And she got into the pool and she she pretty much, um, you know, uh, was able to beat most of them very, very quickly. Uh, the people were in awe, but they were also a bit like, um, a bit shocked. Like she was also very good in the sea. And I think uh, the Federation got um, nervous for her that like, here's this child diving in the sea down to 52 meters but she had to wait until she was 18. So she had to wait almost just over four years to compete and wait for that chance to step up on the podium, uh, which she did when she was 18. And she just she just arrived, as her dad says, like a rocket at 18 in the pool. And then very quickly, the pool became too small for Alessia. And she really started to get serious about breaking world records in the sea. So Stephen grew up in Dublin. And it seems that as soon as he finished school, he wasn't going to follow, you know, the conventional path at all. He, he was keen to see the world and travel on his own, I, I think, a lot. I always had it in my head that I wanted to be an explorer. I always loved looking at places like the Amazon and Congo and Indonesia and imagining what it's like to be there. And we see a lot of footage of that. So tell me about that. It's a really good question, like, and the fact that you picked up on the fact that he wanted to be on his own. He wanted to do it on his own. He wanted to challenge himself. He wanted to see the world. He also, it's not really in the film, but like he he, he kept like a really detailed diary. Do you know, almost like those National Geographic magazines that you would have gotten and that he got years ago. And they have like in the corner, there's a little bubble. And it's like the population, the language, the food that they and he was taking note of all these the details about the about the specific areas and really traveling with, as Peter says, a lot of care and consideration and just getting to getting to know people and learning about their culture. That was his way of kind of doing what he saw David Attenborough doing on the telly um, on a shoestring with no money and 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 coming back and he'd do a bit of teaching here, teaching this year, and then he'd go off again for another year or whatever. You know, sometimes when we were sitting with a lot of Stephen's tapes and 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 the archive we really felt like god was he was he kind of a bit lost at times what was he searching he was searching for something there was this feeling of searching for something and not finding it for ages to find what i was searching for i knew i needed to take the less traveled road Because I got a sense watching him on all his adventures, you know, in the Congo, everywhere. He went everywhere. Um, and it's quite dangerous situations sometimes. But I got a sense he could have become a mountain climber. You know, he could have gone in the exact opposite direction to the direction he went in. He became a free diver. How did that happen? So he he did 
Australia, he did South America, he did North America, um, he did a- all over Asia, and then he went, and he, his big thing was he wanted to do Africa, and eventually he made his way, after doing a lot of Africa, all of Africa really, he ended up in Egypt, and because he wanted to update his paddy, I think with the with your scuba diving license, you have to keep doing adding hours or whatever, every couple years or whatever, so um, to keep it valid. So he went to do his paddy, uh, update his paddy license in a place called Dahab, and that's where he discovered the Blue Hole. And, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, the Blue Hole is a cylindrical sinkhole that's just 10 metres off the coast. So you just walk off the kind of beachy thing and and, and it goes down a hundred meters, and you can see it. There's a drop off. I we went there, we filmed there, and it's all coral around it, so you can't walk on it. So I was kind of doing the breaststroke in very shallow water, you know, really only like about a meter or so, and then all of a sudden it drops down to nothing, like a cliff, like the cliffs of Moher, like really that wood underwater, and and that's where he did his paddy uh, course, and of course that's where he met freedivers for the first time and they were doing it all without the scuba gear uh, you know he was he was just hooked it gave there's something that freediving you know Stephen had kind of been through you know a lot in in his life and was kind of felt like he was kind of struggling with something and, and there's something about freediving that kind of just quietens the mind you know you have to go into this deep meditation you can't be stressing about anything you have to quieten your mind in order to be able to hold your breath and enjoy it and it almost was like that's what Stephen needed he just needed to to kind of breathe or not breathe you know in this case when did their paths first cross Alicia and Stephen so they crossed at Vertical Blue, which we, we see in the film. Um, and it was where, so Stephen started, you know, freediving and, and very, just going back a little bit, um, very quickly he, he broke Irish records. Now Irish records didn't really exist, but he, you know, established them and he, he continued to break his own records. And he went to competitions all around the world and he was at a competition in Kalamata. And he had quite a bad blackout uh, at whereby uh, he had a laryngeal spasm, which is where your larynx closes up, which happens when you black out in the water so that you don't swallow water. But it didn't open again once he once he surfaced, which often it does. You just need to kind of tap your face weirdly. It's called blow tap talk. And that's where your body realizes, OK, you're out of the water. It's safe to breathe. But in his case, it, it didn't. His larynx didn't open. And the safety team around him didn't know what to do to help him. And he really, you know, was in a very precarious, you know, position for, for a number of minutes. And it could have been uh, more dangerous. It, you know, it mightn't have ended as well as it did. And so he realized that people are turning up to these competitions. And they're presuming that the safety team know what to do if, ever, if you know, um, somebody blacks out or whatever. And, and they actually sometimes they don't. And he said, like, this is not safe. This is an accident waiting to happen. And uh, I'd like to, you know, help my fellow freedivers by really kind of getting, vi- like, becoming a safety diver and making sure that every competition that I work at, everybody is up to speed. And so that's what he did. And he became, he really kind of rose to the top of that world. You know, Peter Stevens' dad is a, is a, um, 
is retired now, but he was the the head consultant in Temple Street in in the A and E. So he had that kind of like drive to help people, but also had that kind of mind for biology and science and and really that the, you know all those steps that you need to take in order to kind of make something stable. And so he just was a natural. He was just made for it. And so he rose to the top of that industry and he became the chief safety for Vertical Blue, which is the Wimbledon of freediving. And of course, that's where he and Alessia cross paths because she is about to break the world record. Stephen is the best safety diver on the planet. And of course, you can see in their story, if you, you know, watch the film and as we were making the film as well, we could just see that like, what Alessia had almost too much of, Stephen was lacking in. And what Stephen had too much of, Alessia was lacking in. It was like they were, if only they had a little bit of what the other had, it was like they were kind of each other's missing piece. You know, as watching it, kind of, we, we hope that you can really see that so that you know that when they come together, it's just something magical is going to happen. and Stephen really became a duet in many ways. It was destiny that they found each other. Now, that is the voice of Peter, Stephen's dad. And as luck would have it, while you were researching the film, you found that he, he just happened to live across the road from you and you had no idea about it. I know it's a really like when I tell this story like outside of Ireland people think it's such an oh look sure everybody lives across the road from each other in Ireland but like you know really like you know that we don't <laughs> so I was living in Dunleary and I started to speak to some of Stephen's friends who because he was part of this kind of international tight-knit community I was talking to people in in the Caribbean in the States and all over Europe and and I knew that Stephen's family, Stephen was from Dublin and it's, uh, but I, I kind of like thought it was, you know, they were from Glasnevin and then it was actually Peter got in touch with me in the end uh, because, you know, it's such a tight knit community. He was put in touch with me and he said, why don't we meet in this coffee shop in, in Dunleary? And it was actually attached to my apartment building, which I just couldn't believe. And he, he lived across the road from me. So I'd been chatting to people all over the world for about six months. And I was shopping in the same shop, you know, supermarket as as Peter um, probably walking past him on the street. So it just kind of felt this story that was kind of happening somewhere, you know, very far away was actually now very much on my doorstep. And it was just lovely. And, and we continue to kind of be in regular contact and meet. And, and it's just really nice that like the home of this story really uh, is here in Dublin. And what did he think of his son getting involved in such an obviously dangerous sport? Well, I suppose this wasn't the first thing that Stephen did that was an obviously dangerous thing. Um, so Peter, I suppose, we, we talked a lot about this at the start um, and of like, you know, even Stephen heading off into the Congo, which, you know, was a war-torn country on his own he mightn't be able to make contact with home for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And Peter be hearing things in the news. And you just have to, like, I was kind of saying to Peter, like, how do you, how how do you kind of live with, with that? And really, like, you just learn to, you know, you just, 
have to sleep at night and 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 you're hoping that the phone call you get is the phone call that you want and not the phone call you do but you don't that you don't want but but Peter kind of said that you know he he was always waiting on that phone call at the same time you know he knew it was very possible that something would happen to Stephen and he just kind of lived with that that's exactly what he says in the film like he just had to live with that Freediving is an extreme sport. And extreme sports have extreme consequences. But Peter just has this kind of wisdom, you know, that comes with being a parent and being, you know, having really lived himself as well. And and he's seen a lot in his in his work as well. And he's seen parents, you know, go through awful things with their kids. And I think he drew on that an, an awful lot. But he, one of the things that actually made it possible for me to kind of get wrap my head around this story and to approach it, you know, in a celebratory way was that, like Peter said, that Stephen, the way he lived, like Stephen lived more, you know, in his 39 years than um, a lot of people do if they live to, till they're 80. And and in that way, like he was very proud of of how his son had lived and so was kind of, yeah, maybe consoled a little tiny bit by that. So you started work on the documentary in 2017 and you were talking to everybody and finding out and coming to understand what the sport is. But I mean, actually, the key, I think, well, one of the keys to how amazing the documentary is, is the footage, is the archive footage that we see real dives, we see real competitions. Tell me, tell me about coming across that. that like, it seems to be a sport that documents itself. Yeah, it's a sport that documents itself, but also it was kind of unbelievable how both Stephen and Alessia had been documented or had documented themselves before the days of Instagram and all that. And I had just so many moments of absolute, like, disbelief as I would turn another corner and here's another absolute treasure trove of material or hearing an incredible story, like, you know, when Stephen saves Alexei Molchanov, um, you know, the the deepest uh, male freediver and the son of Natalia. He does this deepest, deepest rescue in, in, in freediving history where Stephen waits at 30 metres for over a minute, starting to run out of breath himself and then spots Alexei down at 40, circling the rope and is already should be going up, but actually goes down and grabs him and brings him up and saves his life. And I heard this story and then, you know, we were like, my God, imagine, is there any hope in hell that this material, material, anything was filmed of this? And it was. And it was filmed on a couple of different cameras. And we have beautiful, incredible audio on the surface. We can hear everything that's going on. And like that just kind of kept happening over and over again. Sometimes there was a moment where we're like, oh, is anybody filming this? And then we'd have one photo of the event. But there'd be somebody in the background. You're like, is that person holding a camera? Who is that person? We'd go to, somebody would say, this is something that happened in 2006. 
anybody know who this guy is? And right, that's Stefano. Okay, where is Stefano? We have, okay, Stef- hi Stefano, we get in touch with Stefano. That seems to be, there's you in the background. Is that camera? Do you still have that footage by any chance? And he'd go off and he'd go up into his attic and he'd um, come back to us and say, yeah, I have like, you know, 600 gigabytes of Alessia from this time in her or, or whatever. And like that just kept happening over and over again. So you had a lot of archival footage, but you also had to get your own footage. Um, like, what was that like? Directing from the water, you had a crew of divers, I assume. How, how did that work? Well, that was just the most amazing filming experience of my life. So we filmed in Dahab uh, in the Blue Hole. Uh, we filmed in Vertical Blue in the Bahamas. And lastly, we filmed in Mexico, both out in the sea and in cenote which is a sinkhole in the jungle which i didn't know was a thing for until recently but we were filming with scuba divers and free divers and you know like i was saying there about the scene where steven saves alexei Molchanov. um you know a lot of the time the camera people are focusing on the diver not the safety diver and what we didn't have from that scene is a shot of steven waiting because that's not what people film because you're looking for the diver And so we wanted to get that to really show the seconds pass and to see Stephen waiting. So we we went out into the quite, it was just off um, Playa del Carmen in in Mexico. And we had to go out far enough that you couldn't, you could see lots of space around the diver, but you couldn't see the surface and you couldn't see the bottom. So we went out to where it was about 80 80 or 100 metres. And we had uh, free diving cinematographer Julie Gauthier and a team of safeties and a team of divers and myself they were all like professional uber professional free divers incredibly skilled and I was on the surface of the water you know and it was quite wavy right in the middle of the sea and I had like a had, they, they made me hold like this noodle that I had to hang on to in case I sank you know I was like oh god it was amazing. It was like having like a fleet of dolphins on our team, on our crew. Like they would just all go down to 30 meters, get this shot, come up, show me on the camera. And I'd say like, that's brilliant, guys. Is there any chance you could just do that one more time and just try and change it a little bit slightly? And they'd say, yeah, no problem. And they'd be down again and up again within a minute. And it was really amazing. Um, and one of our safety divers, when we were finished that day and we were getting the big ferry back to the mainland, they said... Oh, there was a there was a bull shark that I was keeping my eye on uh, the whole time or uh, for a while. Uh, but he was far enough away so that I thought it's fine. <laughs> oh, my God, if I hadn't known that, that that was going on. But they were just so used to that. You know, it's the ocean, of course, there's a shark. But but on, on one of the other days as well, there was a shark quite close to the boat. And we all happened to be in the water. And somebody said, look, there's a shark. And one of the guys, one of the free divers, ran and just jumped off the side of the boat. So my reaction was to, you know, to be like, oh my God, there's a shark. And that was his immediate split second reaction was to run and jump so that you could get a look at him. Laura, did you attempt free diving yourself at all? I gave it a little go when I was in um, in the Bahamas at Vertical Blue and the competition was over and they were just about to take it all apart and a few of us, there was a number of really accomplished divers and safe divers around me and they were like, look, pull down the rope yourself. So I pulled down and uh, the first thing that, because it was just so beautiful and clear and everything, 
And the first thing that I felt was not the urge to breathe, but the pressure on my ears. And so one of the things that we don't talk about too much in the film, because our divers are kind of like the elite that they're not suffering so much with their ears, is that you have to kind of like push air out your ears to kind of like like you're on the plane, you know, you hold your nose and you kind of, and uh, it's a severe pain if you don't do it. And I didn't know how to do it. So I had to turn around and come back up. But I made it to three meters, you know, so um, that's my personal best, which I am delighted with. Now, at the beginning of the film, we see Alicia have a blackout as she's just about to resurface. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's really disturbing to watch. But, uh, you know, as you continue to watch the rest of the documentary, you realise that that's quite a it's quite a common occurrence in freediving. Did you witness any of that yourself while you were making the documentary? Uh, yeah, I did at Vertical Blue in 2021. So we've actually, I myself have only been to one, I think one competition. And the first time I saw it in real life, do you know, where where you're not watching a video where you know what happens at the end, you know that this person's fine. Um, but you're watching it going, waiting for, do you know what, not even, not even the blackouts, but actually even experiencing a dive in real time, live where the person goes down, you watch them disappear and you're just there waiting for them to come back up and everybody is completely silent on the surface. And there is a tension. There is a tension in that moment where the person is no longer visible. They're gone and you're just waiting for them to come back. And you don't know what's, you know, because it's just real life where you're standing. You don't know what's going to happen. And I found that kind of, um, you know, quite nerve-wracking the first few times. Um, and even the fact that everyone goes quiet as well, it just kind of, you, you just kind of realise, hmm, that person's gone. Like, okay, they're tethered to the rope and there's sonar, but, you know, they're gone far away. And when they do come up and they black out, it's, well, you don't know how it's going to go. You know that all the amazing medics are there, but like you don't, you kind of don't look too closely at it. You know, you just kind of take a couple of deep breaths yourself and wait to hear them kind of say, well done, you know, and everything's OK. Now, at the end of the film, we're back in July 2017, Alicia's attempt to freedive the arch at the Daha Blue Hole. That's the sort of, that seems to be this naturally occurring arch way underwater. That's the challenge to swim through and come up. And Stephen was her safety diver, but he blacked out and drowned while attempting to come to her aid. How difficult was it for Alicia to relive that moment for the film? Like incredibly, incredibly difficult. Incredibly difficult. Alessia did it because she wanted what Stephen had done to be known. You know, she wanted people to know that he, you know, lost his life saving her. And the reason she's here is because he did that. But it was by no means an easy thing to do. And we, you know, myself and Alessia are so close now, but we spent years getting to know each other. And, um, you know, we got in touch initially in 2018. And that last interview that we did was in 2021. Um, And, you know, we had been just kind of talking solidly for that whole time. And it's really, really hard for her to, to go back there. But she really wanted to do it. She felt like she kind of wanted the world to know Stephen. 
Now, you interviewed the two dads. I thought that was really interesting, actually. You interviewed, of course, Stephen's dad, Peter, but you also interviewed her dad, Enzo, uh, in Italy. And he was very emotional. And, and he said he, he'd give his life for Stephen to have lived. Just shows how grateful and indebted he was for Stephen to have saved his daughter's life. Yeah, like, that just gave me goosebumps just even hearing you say that. And, like, at the time when we were doing the interview in his home in Rome, um, like, my, my jaw just hit the floor. Going over there, the Enzo's interview was the last thing that we did, last thing that we shot for the for the film. Enzo didn't have doesn't have any English, so I couldn't even really have much of a chat with him beforehand, which I would do endlessly with everybody else. Um, so it was, it was really going in going in quite you know uh, without any real indication of 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 who Enzo was or how Enzo felt about things and. It was interesting for for us because we knew that Alessia's family and Stephen's family had never made contact. They had never been in touch with each other, you know, Um, and this is a number of years after the accident. So I was curious to kind of get Enzo's read on what had happened. And And the question that I asked that he gave that answer to was, if Peter was here now, Stephen's dad, what would you say to him? And that was his, that was his answer, that he would give his life for Stephen. And since then, and since they, you know, they, both families watched the film long before it came out. And I believe that that was quite, you know, cathartic for, for Peter, Stephen's dad, and for their family to hear that kind of gratitude really so clearly put and so heartfelt and since then, actually, the two families, Peter and uh, and his wife, uh, Elaine, went over to Rome and had had lunch, spent the day with Alessia's family, Enzo and, and everybody and her mom. And that was kind of, that was something that kind of um, probably needed to happen just to kind of, yeah, for some kind of, not, you know, not that it's closure or there's anything, but just to kind of shake hands or whatever, yeah. Did you expect the documentary to get the reception it has? It's been massive. The reaction has been massive. You, you never know what, you know, I was sitting here in my attic for a lot of it, you know, when we weren't out shooting or when we weren't in the edit working on this during COVID. And, and you, you know, as a filmmaker, you're always just following your gut and your own heart and how the story is speaking to you. And you, you don't really know if maybe I'm, maybe this is just something that speaks to me. And, um, and so, yeah, we're absolutely, we've all been blown away by the reaction to the film, you know, after um, reading the story uh, about it in the Irish Times and then researching it for a while. And then when I, I brought it to Jamie and Anne in Motive and they're in Dunleary as well, they make a lot of stuff for Irish TV. And immediately Jamie was in, you know, he was like, let's try and make this film. And from then, you know, every kind of every door has opened for us that we've pushed and has it opened doors for you? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, my last film, you know, it, it was an amazing experience and it showed in the IFI and that was a big moment for me. It was something that I always wanted to have my film in the IFI. 
and to see the poster on the wall in there as you walk down the hall. And for this to be now in like 190 countries is insane. So, it, you know, so with a, like as a filmmaker, you're like, I'm just going to try and get this made, you know. And if I can scrape together, you know, bits and bobs to, to, to get it. And I remember at the very start of this, when we didn't have any of those people on board, Peter said to me, you know, there's no pressure. Like if you don't manage to pull this off, don't think I'm going to be really disappointed. I just don't want to put any pressure on you. I don't want you to feel like this is my dying wish now that I want this film to be made. And uh, I just thought, God, there he is, like, thinking about me and all this, you know, thinking, God, I hope she's not under pressure. Like, he, that's just the kind of person that he is. So that's kind of where you're at as a filmmaker. You're like, I, whatever the next project is, and I'm developing a few pieces at the moment, you never know, but but hopefully um, we'll be able to get the next one off the ground. Thanks very much, Laura. Thank you so much. Just lovely chatting to you. That's all for today. My thanks again to our guest, Laura McGann. You can stream her film, The Deepest Breath, on Netflix now. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode is produced by Suzanne Brennan. In the news, we'll be back tomorrow.